Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly podcast about food, about passion, and about changing the world. We're in Boston today with Robert Lewis Jr., who, God, Robert Lewis Jr., I've known you for at least 30 years, but I haven't seen you in about a year. Last time I heard your name, it was being called out by the governor of the Commonwealth <laughs> of Massachusetts on the night that he was reelected. Uh, so I know you're doing lots of great things, and it's really great to have you back here. Great to see you, my friend. So thanks for doing this. And Douglas Williams, um, a chef and restaurateur whose name comes up constantly, including this past weekend as I was having dinner with Christopher Myers and Joanne Chang. And they told me, Douglas, that you were, I think you'd been at Radius for at, at some point. Is that yeah, right? I, I was there as, as my first step into Boston. Right. Um, it's my real professional career and the, the gateway to that. And they were just huge supporters of me and um, just, you know, helped me catapult myself and, and with confidence and, and with uh, latitude. So, And um, your restaurant yeah. now is called Mida. Mida means he gives me. He gives and, me. And we translate that to generosity. And that's a pillar that the restaurant stands on, how we hire, how we price wine, how we, how many menu items, everything, the portion size, it, it all translates from that. And um, it's translated well and the neighborhood is, is, is welcoming to it. Fabulous. And did you say a couple years old? Uh, two years old this two past old. December. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Can't wait to get there. Thank you very much. And I think Robert Lewis and I are scheming. On oh, yeah. I'll, when, I'm going to be there Wednesday when night. We I'm there. Definitely I don't know if I can get your reservations. So I will oh, say we'll okay. try. Hey, listen, I'll, I'll sneak in or something. Okay. <laughs> There's a back door to the left. All right. I'll keep it open. So, Douglas, you know, I read that um, you were on a path to become a teacher, which I think of my my colleague Robert here as a teacher now. Uh, but you were on a path to become a teacher, and then you got ill. It was Crohn's disease, I think. Tell us how that led to you doing what you're doing now. That sounded like it was a pretty formative moment. Yeah, in such a big way. Um, so, you know, in, in when I was 16, I was a junior year of high school. I started to get these pains, and, you know, you know normal kid just, just doing what he does. And I, I, I saw some sites on trying to run a track at TCU. That was like my, you know, my big... Like, okay, I could do this. This is how I'll get to college. This is how I'll pay for it. I want to teach third and fourth graders, uh, you know, English and history. That was my, that's what I want to do. That's what I was passionate about. I loved history. Love to teach kids, you know, how to, how to just see the path forward. And um, all of a sudden I woke up one day on a Saturday and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't crouch over. And I said, what the heck is going on? We, she, mom took me to the hospital and um, they thought it was appendicitis. They didn't know what it was. And then all of a sudden it went to CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which was one of the best of the country at that time. And I was just barely able to get in because they said your feet are hanging over the bed so you can't necessarily be here in the hospital bed because you're too big so i they let me in they healed me um they gave me surgery they took out six inches of my intestine put me back together and we found out something still wasn't working they said oh medicine will help you you know the food eh, doesn't really do anything just do the medicine do the steroids and we went ahead and did that and it wasn't working and we finally said it's got to be diet and stress so mom uh, my mother's half syrian half lebanese um, my father's black so um my you know i have a really deep food history and just food you know uh, culture so my mother always ate with whole foods grains tomatoes all the good stuff that you needed uh low sugar and we said we're gonna heal this so she uh started to she bought this one book elaine gotchel um uh the vicious cycle it was a nutrition book it was a, it was a nutrition book it was making candy out of honey uh, uh, uh brownies out of nut flour all the things basically trying to go around and it still kind of wasn't working and so i just said, you know what, I'll, I'm going to do culinary school. I'm going to figure it out. And, you know, I had in culinary school, I had a trash can next to me in class and all the kids can be, you know, however they need. And I would take these pieces of bacon or take a piece of this or take a piece of, and I have to spit it out. I get the texture, I get the seasoning and I spit it out and go to the next thing. And that's the only way that I could actually be a part 
of my cooking class. And I said, I have to try 10 times as hard just to get to the end of this. And hopefully I can come out doing well. At the end of that uh, uh, time, I saw we had a newsletter in the back of our uh, in the back of our paper. And it said my had Michael Schlau's face on the back of the newsletter. He went to the school with my dad in 88. And Michael Schlau's a very well-known restaurateur here in Boston. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and that's when I was, that's when I saw Radius and I, I was like, okay, well, Boston's close enough. Um, at the time, my mom was uh, pretty sick with uh, breast cancer. Um, and I said, New York's a little too expensive. California's too far. Boston's that little niche. I'll try it out, see what I could do. And then maybe I'll go from there. Moved to Boston uh, two months later, met Christopher Myers. And he was actually the very first person to give me a birthday card because my I landed there in May. My birthday's in June. And he gave me such sage advice. And he was the one who made me feel welcome because I had no one there. And I couldn't go back home because I had no money to really travel back at that time because I just started. So he's the one who made me feel comfortable and made me feel like I was a part of something. And I stand up staying for almost three years. And then he just gave me the advice that I needed to keep to keep going and the trajectory. Uh, Robert, you know, you've been doing in, in different forms. I feel like you've been doing what you've been doing almost your whole life. It's like you were born for it. You're this city's and one of this nation's premier advocates for young people, uh, and particularly young people who have had some challenges and not all of the advantages in life. Where did that start for you? What's your version of the, the story that uh, Douglas was just telling us about himself? You know, I, I always say I'm that kid. You know, mom had mom had me at 17. She had six kids by the age of 22. My mom and dad had a fourth grade education from Lake City, South Carolina. And my mom just raised us. And it was this whole idea that love always wins. And she says, in life, if you love and treat people with respect, you will go far. Because she didn't know anything around getting to middle school or high school or college because no one in my family even went to high school. So high school was... Um, this dream, but how you treated people and loved people um, um, was how I was raised. And, you know, it started being the first black family in East Boston in 1961. Your family was. My family was the first in the Maverick Street Housing Projects in Boston. And, you know, we went through a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of racism in 1976. How old were you at the time? I was one. And in 1976, I was firebombed out my home by my best friend who was white. So my house went up in flames and uh, I remember we were angry and my mom was like, you win with love. If you're locked up or arrested, you can't do anything in life. And my mother used to always say, you know, you're here to do something big and whatever that really meant, um, Billy, at that time. And literally just followed his path of love and, and you know, you know, equity and service and not really giving back, but being of, um, you know, but it was really being of something. So I made a commitment in my life that I was going to be part of young people in community and shifting this narrative that folks actually portray our poorer and black and brown communities in a different way. And what we realized is that if you had love, if you had a roof over your head and you had food, you can survive. And that was what my mother provided me. And, and literally, I lived that every single day is that, you know, be a good community servant you know, love your community and the young people and the families and make sure they have really the necessities for them to survive. And that is a roof over their head, you know, a place to eat. And, and you know, and I'm excited about Mida because we need, we need these great restaurants. And honestly, I'm very proud to say it's in Roxbury, you know, right in Roxbury, because that's 
where the food deserts and everything, you know, are or were. Um, so this is what my, my life has been. So I just continue to live this, this path that the late Annie May and the late Robert Lewis set for me and, and my family. So one thing that begs the question is how this guy was your best friend who firebombed your house. So we, you, you, you said that as it was, it was, as it was, as if it were almost a natural thing, but what was the deal there? You know, it was during a time of segregation busing and everything happening in Boston. And, um, Literally, um, you know, from what I found out later in life, and unfortunately, I don't, I don't use his name and I don't say his name because I feel like I validate him or it, you know, but what I heard was there was a group of, you know, other folks, you know, white kids who said him to him at 1617, if you want to be one of us, or do you want to be an end lover? If you're going to be an end lover, then, you know, he was going to get hurt. But if you want to be one of us, you have to prove it. And part of the proving it was throwing a Molotov cocktail bomb into our house and lighting our house on fire. One, that Wednesday night, I was at his house and we had lasagna and meatballs. And your best friend, you're at his house, he's at your house. I watched him walk to my house when I was on the second floor of our housing development. And I seen him, so I went to get my jacket so I could see him out the window. And I seen him light the bottle like you know and you know it's um so i seen him and um watched him throw the um um the the bomb into my house so um i seen him right so it's personal right it's um you know and like i said i don't i i seen him about a year ago and uh, it was the first time I seen him since May of 1976. And I knew at that point that he didn't see me because he walked up to me as if nothing ever happened. Mm, really? And <gasps> and if there's a couple of things, I don't want to say this. Um, last year or two years ago, the Boston Globe did the story on busing and desegregation. You could take a look at it. The woman, Farrah Stockman, was a Globe writer. She wrote the story of my family during the busing and actually ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize on my family story. And what was weird about it when she won the Pulitzer Prize, everybody wanted me to go on a speaking tour and people don't realize how devastating that still is. So um, it's personal, but it changed the trajectory of my life. And the only thing I could say is, um, you know, it's about, we were talking this whole time, it's about moving forward. Um, And I can't let that one moment define me. Um, but use that one moment to define, you know, where I want to go in life. And then I'd say the blessing, the blessing, because there's blessings. We moved to the Via Victoria community in the South End. And that's where from there, uh, the next part of my career, I believe, with the baseball, the community service, met my wife and family. So you look at sometimes it's like the tragedy and it's what you do with that. And part of it is make that tragedy something that would be good for both us, our family, and the larger community. Love always wins. And when you walk into a hospital or restaurant or something, nobody asks you for your GPA. No one asks you for your, you know, your degrees. People basically are genuinely nice and kind. And I just think we need that. And that's what makes the greatness for me of communities. And it's a, it's a philosophy, the philosophy of Mita, in terms of generosity and the spirit of generosity that you bring to it, not the same words, but it feels like the same 
idea, Douglas, same sentiment. Um, and, and, and where did that come for you? Did that come from family? Does that come from something just along your own trajectory and work? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that my family is, is generally grateful. Everybody's been through something. And when you go through something, you have a general appreciation for life. You just have a, or a better appreciation for life. And, you know, depending on the degree of your plight or depending on the degree of your challenges, you, you know, have a much deeper sense of how important some things are to you and how, how easily it can be taken away. And all of my family, whether it be through diabetes, whether it be through high blood pressure, whether it be through uh, uh, poverty, whether it be through just just bad circumstances, um, you know, you have a better almost. A, it's kind of weird because it's a, a juxtaposition. It's a better outlook on life. And you just are more appreciative for the simpler things you have. Just going to my mother, it's, you know, when I was 10, she got breast cancer. They sort of kind of misdiagnosed her. She had a double mastectomy. The whole thing just really just tore me down. My dad was in California. Great great gentleman but my mom was 40 when she had me and my dad was 23 so there was a huge just miss of opportunity of having things that aligned and you know to this day i just want things aligned for my family i just had twins a year ago february 8th last year and they just had their birthday so uh, you know twin boys twin, twin boys twin yeah, boys fraternal. picture them somewhere yeah just just absolutely just Fantastic. so so lucky and all i wanted from my life was just cohesion and just kind of the straight, you know, I didn't want this imbalance of too much family on one side here and not enough religion on that side. And it just like, it was always imbalanced, whether it be the white, well, how the world perceived my mother as white and, you know, my father's black and a ton of family on my dad's side and not enough family on mom's side and um, not enough balance. And I just want to try to get balance. And I saw that and I translated that into my life. I know this sounds, you know, lofty, but I tried to put that into restaurant form as far as balance of having great diversity where we we are right on the corner of the most one of the most impoverished uh, neighborhoods in Boston, Roxbury, and 200 feet over, 175 feet over is South End, one of the most gilded, you know, high income neighborhoods in the in the in the in the in the country. And I just was like, this is so crazy. I knew a couple of people that passed this this um, space up, and I said, this is so ideal. It tells the story. I don't even I don't even have to tell half the story now. And um, I can't believe someone didn't pick it up before, but now. That, you know, when people come out to eat, they have to pass the entire South End, they have to t pass the entire uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Back Bay to come to my restaurant and dine and enjoy themselves in the cold, in the rain, in the snow, in the most, you know, we mostly get snow and rain, so it's like, you know, whatever. But people make the trek and that feels special to me in its own. And then when people come over, they look around and they say, oh, that Victorian hasn't been renovated we should think about that or that apartment looks pretty cool but they would have never done that if they didn't come over they didn't have a reason to be pulled over and now there's other restaurants starting to pop up and there's you see scaffolding happening and right. once you see the scaffolding that is growth and that's what i saw when i first moved to boston and 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 going back to christopher myers and and that first experience i saw opportunity when i started when i was cycling the city every day i was cycling from somerville um going to going to uh, high street in summer right in downtown crossing and all I saw was all this opportunity because when you see poor neighborhoods, I saw the same thing in Lang City was, you know, you have this gilded area, the beach, the casinos, you know, Trump's name, all this. Like it was just all that. That's all I remember from my childhood. And one block over is Warzone. Warzone, same thing in Las Vegas. It's the same thing. And I just said, there's so much opportunity here. And I when I came here, it just brought me back. And I said, I think I'm going to set some roots here. I'm going to find me a, a wonderful lady. I'm going to have me some beautiful babies. I'm going to get me a nice house and I'm going to get me a restaurant. And, but there's no, for me, there was no other option. And I said, it's either that 
or death because if you stay in Lang City for too long, you work there for the rest of your life and you that's that's your life or or you end up hustling or you end up doing drugs or all three. And I said, that's not that can't be. I'd rather I'd rather and I hate to say this, but I'd rather be that I'd rather not go through a life of hell that my grandmother went through, that everybody my family went through. I just want to be I have to be more impactful and more influential. And that was the only that was the only part I was going to set for myself. And you had a vision, and I feel like it's like yours, Robert. Douglas had a vision of opportunity where other people saw, you know, maybe problems. You saw an opportunity. You saw that corner where your restaurant is. Uh, you talk often, Robert, about how our youth in this country are one of our most untapped assets, right? And most people, a lot of people see them as like a problem, right? Um, but it feels very similar to, you know, your life's work. But, but you know, it's, it's this thing. It's like language matters, right? The narrative matters. So we don't use connotations that somebody said on our folks around at risk, you know, disadvantaged, underserved. I don't know what that means. Like we say we have, you know, our young folks are untapped. They're great. They're resilient. As I'm listening to Douglas, I swear we could literally talk all night because it's our story. This is I'm thinking for some might say, is that new? We I didn't know that I was poor and still never felt poor until someone in college said I was poor. I actually used to say, this is true thing about poor. I go out with a bike, 15 kids had a bike. When we would drive to Nantasket, which was a trip, and I would see that one kid at the house on a bike by himself with a basketball, we used to say that poor kid because that <laughs> kid was by himself. We had 15 friends on a bike. You played basketball in the projects. You knew you had a win to stay on because if it was next. So all of these things were just how we, we grew up. And when you had family that didn't say, you know, people use the word hand-me-downs. We didn't know they were hand-me-downs. We just knew that, like, my sister wore corduroys and they fit, right? And it's a little bit of what we're trying to tell our young folks today is that we can get so caught up on what you look like and all of these things. I define your zip code will not determine your success. Your dreads and your hair will not determine your success. Hard work, resilient, no matter what, and you have a shot. And I start to think of even when I was in high school, when people said, mother had me at 17, welfare, grown up in the projects, no dad. Somebody already wrote the story. And we turned around and says, I guess we kicked that story because part of that was you surround yourself with great people and people who matter. And I say this with the utmost respect. Billy, it was a blessing for me 30 years ago meeting you and meeting folks who cared about this young black kid from Boston who never traveled, never went on an airplane until I went to City Air, right? And I'm like almost 30 years old, and we got folks that love and believe in you, and they're there, and this is what we have to provide for our young folks, opportunities. And I leave here today, as much as I'm being selfish about Douglas, I'm letting my young folks know when I get back, I can tell you somebody who owns a restaurant in the hood that's successful, that has a story. But it's not about a charity story. It's a story of resilience. It's a story of hard work. And when you do that, things can happen. And Douglas, you know, as I'm being you, it's, and it's real, and it's real. So that's what we have to do, is not being afraid to share the greatness of others with our young folks. Mm -hmm. So Douglas, this restaurant could get more crowded than it already is, <laughs> quickly. We're going to have to build a roof deck or something. <laughs> uh, so, so Douglas, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that your timing with the twins was probably good because there was a period where, as you were becoming the chef 
uh, and the business leader that you are, that you got to travel the world. You may not be able to do that right now with these two little guys, but uh, you were in uh, Paris, you were in Thailand, you were in New York. Uh, tell us a little bit about that stage of your your career. Going back to Chris, he said, I asked him, I was like, how do you, how do you do, how do you get out of it? How do you get out of, the, not the rat race, but how do you get, be worldly? And he said, you make a one, three and seven year plan. And I was like, what? I was like, no, ever told me how, you know, I was like, I didn't, I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I went home and I, it clicked right away. And um, I said, you know, I'm gonna make this plan. I'm, I'm gonna plan to exit this restaurant. I'm gonna plan to go and travel. I'm gonna save a certain amount of money and I'm gonna just go. I didn't, I was making 19,000 a year take home and that's not enough to really do anything with. Um, but I said, you know what, if, you know, if he gives me that advice, I'm gonna trust him. And, you know, that's what I did. And, you know, double checked with moms and she was like, yeah, that, you could do it and do it. So I, I, I made a uh, made some connections and I had a good friend um, that was from Thailand, native to Thailand. You know, I uh, said, well, could, do you have a cousin or something? He's like, actually, I do have a cousin. He has a condo that he's not using in Bangkok. Do you want to go and say that he's going to stay in Champagne and, you know, do whatever with his wife? And but you can use the condo. And I said, uh, great, great. So I got that. Booked a uh, ticket to uh, Thailand and one of the cheapest tickets I've ever um, uh, flown on and stayed there for three months and uh, uh, just cooked and learned and traveled they taught me how to make rice though i taught them how to make pasta they don't really use a lot of flour flour so they were like what is this gluten they are like why are we working this it was it was an insane experience yeah so when you when a stranger uh comes from the united states stranger to thailand you land in thailand next thing you know you're cooking with somebody who has great expertise how does that happen when when you go to a new uh country um and you don't know anyone except for maybe one person and you know maybe you know, you figure it out. And I just, I was like, well, what's the best way to go meet someone? I was like, well, the way I do it, if I was in America, I'd do it through food. I go to a restaurant, I, you know, say I'd a bartender and you make, make your way. So I said, well, it doesn't quite work the same way here in Thailand. So I got off at the, uh, at the train station, um, after I got off the flight and got dropped off in the middle of Bangkok, got off, saw kind of a free Wi-Fi sign on one of the, uh, on one of the um, uh, Thai restaurants. So I went down, I was like, great, I need some Wi-Fi. I need to make sure my mom knows I'm here, blah, blah, you know, let everybody know I'm okay. Went down, ordered some Thai stuff, saw the owner in the back cooking. And you could tell she's the owner because she's serving and she's like, you know, keeping everybody in check. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, I need to keep an eye on her, make sure she comes by and serves me. I, you know, say a little something. Obviously, she speaks a little English. And I sat down, opened my computer, ordered some, ordered some uh, curry, and she dropped it off. And I said, Hi, my name is Douglas. And I just introduced myself and I just said, how are you? I was like, do you own this restaurant? She's like, yes, I do. And she ran back and, you know, came back a couple more times. And then by the end of, you know, her, the, the rush, she just, uh, we started talking. I said, would you, I was like, I see you have a small kitchen there. You only have one cook. Would you be open to, um, show me a little something if I, if I, uh, uh, can stay out of your way. And she said, absolutely. So uh, for the next uh, three weeks, she, and she happened to be, I didn't even know, but she was the queen of curry. She was, she, she worked in actually London for seven years with her sister and um, her sister just afforded her to, to stay in London. And she actually dubbed the name queen of curry. And she got so popular. She decided to move back to Thailand to open up her own restaurant. And she was the queen and she taught me how to reduce the coconut milk just right. And then add the vegetables, then add the protein or shave the thing this way. Um, the, the point I want to get to was it's humbling because you see how other people live. And when you see how other people live, that's what changes your mind. That's the mind switch. And that, you know, talking with Robert is like the perspective is what getting people's getting young folks mind. I'm not just talking black kids. I'm talking white. I'm talking from Southie. I'm talking Asian. I'm talking every single ethnicity. If you are underserved, 
you are involved in Black History Month. You are involved in the plight. You are involved in, you are, you are part of the community that is trying to get everyone else out of it. You are trying to get up and elevate. And perspective is what helps a lot with that. If you, if you, I didn't even know there was things outside of Atlantic City. I didn't know there were things outside of the country. First time I went out, I was like, what? Blew my mind. So that, but it's also addictive. That's the only problem. Once you get someone out, yes. it's very addictive, <laughs> especially for a young child, because now they want to go and go and go and go and see and see and hope you got some savings because that's going to start to run up. And um, Thailand, going to Paris, training in New York and those are always my dreams of of being um you know outside what is outside of atlantic city and once i saw it you can't you don't go back and you you, you just you cannot unsee the truth you cannot unsee you know um people who are also 17 who are also 24 whatever age it is when you get out there if you see someone in the same position as you whether it be no money or um disadvantaged or uh, uh advantaged whatever it is you have this relation and now you know you are not the only one with that problem. You are not the only one suffering from this condition or feeling or uh, frustration. And now you can share that. And once you take that off your shoulders, there's a lot less hate for the world. There's a lot less kind of uh, angst and just you just have this, you open up the love. And that's the, sometimes that's the only way you can do that is by seeing someone else share in the same things you're going through. And perspective is the key to, you know, just having that, that openness and, that, and finding that love. Those are the type of things we need to teach children. And those are the type of things we need to teach even adults is independent thinking. Get out, get out of what you're used to hearing and just pick up a book about someone else. And you will, you, it is impossible to feel any sort of angst about someone. It is impossible. Racism, racism is very easily deleted and very easily combated, but with not without education, you can't, it's impossible. Yeah. So Robert, I'm looking at you and I'm, I see this as resonating. And as somebody who's worked with young people your entire life, I, I knew you when you were doing it at City Year, then you went on to do it at the Boston Foundation. And now you're running uh, an organization called The Base, which I, I want to I hear about. But um, when, did, when did you realize that you were going to kind of devote your, your life, both professionally and personally, to helping young people have a chance? You know, I think, Billy, when I think of there's there's a few things. One was... Um, I think, again, the firebombing had so much of an effect on me. But I also realized that I didn't, I didn't really know anyone who went to college. When I was a pretty good football player, you know, um, not as good as my brother. My brother had a shot, and he played a few years of um, NFL. So when I got recruited, UMass was the only college that said, we want you. Others said, we hope you consider I grew up, nobody ever like said, we want you except the friends on your block. So there was something about feeling wanted and needed. And it just reminded me so much of our young folks feeling wanted and needed. And when I realized I needed to do something, oh boy, from city year to the National Conference Community Justice, the work that made a Boston Foundation. But it was a report that came out that just said, in inner cities around our country, young men of color were negative on every social determinant. And I'm reading this report at the foundation, and I'm the vice president of programs. This is at the Boston Foundation. When I was at the Boston mm -hmm. Foundation. And I had this baseball program that I always did. After I read that report, I brought it to a group of our young folks. And for the first time, they realized what I did professionally because all they knew me was coach. You know, vice president of foundation, giving away money didn't mean anything except 
their eyes lit up. You give away money like you wear a suit every day, not just a sweatsuit. It would hit me when my young folks were telling me that all these organizations I'm funding, that they weren't using them. They weren't using they them. They weren't using them. It's fascinating. And then yeah. all of a sudden, when we look at Boston, 75% of youth serving organizations in our city are closed by seven o'clock. I'm funding them. I'm the kid from the hood. And it, it reminded me, why were we sneaking in playing basketball at night? Why are we sneaking into the pools, stuff at night? And think of it, I could have got caught and had a quarry for wanting to play, right? It's when I left and says, I want to do something that's about convening and using sport as a vehicle that brings the best of everyone together. Like, not just like we talk a lot about urban, but we weren't allowed to play in a lot of the suburban leagues. Don't ask me why. They would say, no, no, no. So we built our own. We built ours. And what's happening now is we have suburban programs playing within the base in Roxby, Dorchester, Mattapan. And then all of a sudden, we realized that there was this need. So the west side of Chicago was being lit up with so much violence. They recruited us. Your hometown of Pittsburgh, we're opening up. I was so dedicated to being in Pittsburgh. And then I went to visit the community of McKees Rock. And it, it, it stunned me. It was the first time in my life I ever seen black, white, poverty, and brown is mostly Mexican. I've never in my life ever seen poor white people, ever. And I'm looking at the black, white, and Mexican folks, and it's not about race. They're broke, poor. Talk about deserts. Nothing was there. And we decided, if I'm going to open up instead of Pittsburgh, I want to open up in McKees Rock. And it's the same thing with Indianapolis. We're looking to open up. We're about two miles away from the white nationalist movement. And their compound is about two miles away from where a group of poor, young, black and white kids are. And we're opening up there. The reason why I share that is our young folks deserve every right to succeed, every right to be great, every right to take their resiliency forward. And launching the base has allowed us to use baseball as a tool to educate folks, for folks to know there's careers, but also this other thing, which I love more than anything we're doing, we're, we're employing folks. We're employing folks from the neighborhood with jobs, and we're employing folks to participate in the 21st century economy. And I don't say this because we're on this podcast. If you can put a house, which we built a state-of-the-art facility in Roxbury, we feed them, we give them snacks and water and the things they need, then our kids have a shot. You will not be successful in school. You will not be successful on the field if your body and your mind and your heart and soul isn't nourished. And that's what we're looking to do. And when we do this, we're literally shifting generations, not just this group of young folks we're serving. We're shifting generations in these communities that we all should feel, as we were saying earlier, represents all of us. So tell us how the base works, how many kids you're dealing with, what kind of services yeah. they're getting, when it started. So I started in 2013, and we started with about 150 kids. We're today serving about 1,000 kids in Boston, and we're in um, three other cities around the country. Um, what we're doing is we're using baseball and softball as a vehicle um, to shift the narrative for urban kids. So when you walk in a base, during the day, I run an associate degree college on site. I have a state-of-the-art indoor baseball facility, but I have classrooms. We do dual enrollment classes. We do um, college essays, college writing, SAT prep, SAT prep um, testing. Every single thing that folks say our kids don't get in school, we provide. So you're creating this, cult, this college-going culture. It's a culture. For these kids. And, and just in three or four years, four-plus years in Boston, 
We've sent over 280 kids to college, about 140 kids, room, board, and tuition for school. We've raised over $40 million in academic scholarship. I have not accepted one athletic scholarship since our inception, which I won't. Our young kids need to learn, and they need to read. They can't just keep playing ping pong pool and shooting hoops. We got to do better, and we use baseball as a tool of academic prep, academic readiness, while also competing at the highest level on a national level. And tell us a little bit about who these kids are, what challenges they're facing. I mean, if you're uh, if you're not from the neighborhood, if you're not, yeah. if you haven't grown up, what should we understand about just why these kids need this? If, if we listen to the earlier part of my introduction, and Douglas, those are the kids. We literally are kids in Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, and I'm tired of folks saying they're disadvantaged in those communities. But I'll be honest, we've had kids that have struggled. We probably have 100% of our kids knows more than two or three folks that have been shot and killed. College- 100% uh, of them. 100% of somebody. my kids. Like, it's 100%. You know, and listen, I actually, when I wanted to open up my building, here was the story. I was telling folks I was opening up in Roxbury. Where should I open? I found it interesting that everybody told me where I shouldn't open, right? They're like, no, 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 just don't open here. And that's exactly where we open on Walnut Park. We open exactly where folks said we shouldn't because it's about community impact. So our young folks are, you know, I would say um, what everybody would describe. They're all first gens, all first generations, even considering college. I About 80% of our kids are Spanish-speaking, um, probably about 15% African-American, 5% white. Um, you know, we probably have about 5% of our young folks don't play baseball or softball at all, but they just come for the academics. Three years ago, we had no girls, none whatsoever. Three years later, we have about 400 girls in our program. So we do softball and baseball. We do girls' baseball as well. But what we're really trying to provide is our, and I don't like the comparison, but I'll use it. People say our kids should get everything that someone in the suburbs should get. I flip it and say our kids would do better than the suburbs where they want to emulate us. And and I say that in a real thing. We're the only inner city team in America that's won three United States baseball championships. I get more kids playing Division One, Two, Three college baseball, kids in the pros. And if you walk in a base, you will not see one photo of any of our professional players. Any. But what you'll see are rows of college banners in the base because that's what's changing the generations. Heck, I'm going to spring training to see my kids play. But we're changing generations to come. And when we do this, that's why I'm saying out of our 12 staff, all of my program staff, every one of my program staff, seven of them, lives in Boston, Boston Public School grads, and all college grads. So you can't tell me what our community can't do. We're going to show you exactly what it takes. So the gang member is now called college grad. Isn't that funny? Five years ago, someone was called a gang member. Today, we call him college grad. So... This is what we're doing and surround folks around the right people, have high standards and expectations, do not lower. We say at the base, no rules, but expectations, right? High expectations and surround them with successful people. Our community is going to be all right. Now it's convincing the adult population to invest in them. So that's why we say urban talent's American talent, because when you look at them, please look at your 21st century workforce. Well, Douglas, you know, at, at Share Strength, we work with restaurants, uh, thousands and thousands of restaurants around the country, and uh, they've been incredibly generous and, and uh, have had this great, I guess, uh, commitment to our anti-hunger work. 
But one of the things I love about the industry is it's also a place where a lot of people get a chance that they otherwise might not have. And I don't know, I haven't been to your restaurant. I don't know what it, what it's like, but do you see the restaurant industry and do you see, and you're creating, you're somebody who's creating jobs for people. Do you see that as an, as an opportunity to have a social impact in addition to the fact that you're just creating a great place in the community? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the restaurant is multi-sided for sure, multifaceted. And, um, that's what's so interesting about it is that someone, you know, I didn't, I never took my SATs. I was way too late. I didn't know a lot of things. So I'm essentially, I was essentially saving myself, but the only way I could do that was to, you know, uh, come out of that was to, was to have a restaurant. And that just blossomed into now providing jobs and providing careers for others, which I never really, I never always saw like that, but I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I did. I wanted to be, you know, a boss of someone and not a, you know, a, uh, an employee to someone forever. And that's, that's, that's just the way I, I saw it. I saw I can't just be working for someone and impact um, a community or a person or uh, um, an industry the way I want to if I'm working for someone. So I said, well, let me open this restaurant. And then what I found, it really wasn't something I planned. Is really what I found is that people really want to give their all um, if you are willing to protect and go to bat for them. You're talking, about, not, you're, you're talking about your employees, the people my, you hire? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the people that I hire, people that even come through or want to work there. And, you know, when you start to build this culture, um, it it becomes addictive to people that they say, I want to work there. I want to be in this in this lovely space that supports its staff, that support, that, that really gives every, 110% to their, um, um, to their uh, guests every day. Because um, essentially, we open up every single day and we throw a party. We... It, if, if someone you think about oh you throw a party once a month and you like gotta clean and do all this stuff and do all this prep and hire all these people and blah you know all these people come over you and they leave and you have to you have this massive amount of stuff all over the place and you have to clean up it's like oh good thing I don't do that twice a year we have to do that every <laughs> single night perfectly do you know the type of dedication and 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 wherewithal that takes and you have people that have never that can't even keep their room clean that come in my restaurant and keep it sparkling like a like a brand new Ferrari. Like it is it is insane the amount of pride that they take at that how much sac how much sacrifice they make for their own life and keep their own life to the wayside while they come to my restaurant and say, I'm gonna give my life to you. And and I'm gonna trust you in that. And I have to take that with many, 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 you know, a, a, a lot of weight because they are depending on me for me to show them the right way to do things, to be a, a good example and a leader. And uh, that is, uh, man, it is it is a lot of pressure. And that's why a lot of chefs don't handle it very well. That's why we drink. That's why, you know, there's the drugs. That's why there's the, the all the all the vices that come with it is because not only do you have to be perfect every day or people chastise you, on uh, uh, you know uh, reviews and everything else, but you also have an entire culture to protect. So it's, it's like, and you have a fa- and and there's life outside of that, and then there's maybe you get to have a little bit of fun somewhere in between there. But you know it, it's 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 nearly impossible to be perfect. But man, if you give it your all and you and you show that to your employees every day, that rubs off. I mean, oh man, I, I'm sure it's the same thing at the base when you when you see all these people that are all these young kids that are just immersed in what you are showing them and what you have provided and what you've built for them. Oh, and you also have to make it financially viable. That oh, just <laughs> yeah, that, just that, just that piece. Yeah, yeah. you know, and 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 ask. And paint us a little picture. Robert and I come in there for dinner one night. What's what's our experience going to be, and what are you going to be most proudest of in terms of like what we take away from it? What do you want us? What do you want us saying to each other when we leave the restaurant? 
Um, probably the same thing, probably the same look I had in my eye when I, I sat down for dinner at Radius the day before I started working there. And I was sitting there and it was just this, there was, you feel like you're glowing. That's, that's the, that's essentially the feeling. You feel like you are, like you are a, uh, what's those things? Fireflies. You feel like you have this, um, you feel like you're transported. Um, I don't know if you ever, either of you've been to Paris or, or London, but you know, when you're there, when you're on this, when you're in New York, when you, this energy fills you, right? It fills you, you're eating, you're talking about things, about past experiences, about the future, about positive energy, about things you want to, how you want to change the world. If you're having those conversations, eating my food in my restaurant on the corner of Mass Ave and Tremont and Roxbury, sort of kind of south, like just in that nucleus, man, that is, that that's is, success. that that's what you've done. That's, that's the, that's the piece. And when you walk out the restaurant and you hold on to that energy and it makes you wait and go to sleep with it and you wake up the next day and you walk out the door feeling nourished and feeling positive and feeling like, man, I'm really glad I went there. I can't wait to go back. That's. How could you how could you ask for more? And it's the same thing probably when they walk in base, they go in, they can't believe that this existed, can't believe no one told them about it before. You're kind of mad that you wasted all this time. And now you go in, <laughs> you transformed, and you walk out and you're like, I'm a new man. And that's I think that has that same that same connection. Is that okay? <laughs> Is that the way it works, Robert, at the base? Listen, you know, you walk in, first of all, every one of our young people looks you in the eye. If you're not used to being hugged, get used to it. We yeah, don't man. shake hands. Yeah, we Hugs hug. and handshakes. I mean, we man. just met. Doug yeah. is like, oh, <laughs> seriously. It's, it's love. It's, 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 it's how we were raised. Love always wins. So what I love is our young folks, it's almost they appreciate it. They appreciate, you know, what they have. The one thing we have that's a little bit different is we made a decision that we don't hire a company to clean at night. Our young folks clean every night. Like you said, it's a culture. It's a culture. It's in, if you ask them, those people always ask, why do you guys do it? This is our home. This is our family. It's a redefinition of house and family. It's a redefinition of a roof over your head. It's a redefinition of where do I get nourished and who's feeding me. It's a redefinition of like, you know, uncle, aunt. And when you run a program and the young women are saying to us, that, you know, you treat us like we would expect and want a father to treat us. You know, that like matters. So that's why it's the right people. It's the right staff. I love what you're saying. There's a pride, right? And there's a pride in being exceptional. I, I think people, there's a pride with being exceptional because you want people coming back. And what I love, honestly, I love when my friend and our dear friend, Alan Casey, brings the Brookline Little League program to visit the base and all these kids in Brookline and say, mommy and daddy, we don't want to leave. Can we come back? What starts to have is that narrative shift. So then we don't get caught up in the Roxbury South End. We don't get caught up. What we get caught up is I run a successful business that inspires folks. They want to come back. And it doesn't matter that I happen to be African-American that runs it. What I know how to do is run something that's going to make a difference in our community. That's also going to be part of generational change. And what's going to happen is our kids at the end pay it forward. If there's one thing that inspires me, um, and this is before we moved to our new headquarters, we're taking things off the wall. You'd walk in and you would see the large big checks. And everybody was thinking, who is the big donor? Those were our college graduates that paid it forward that were writing us checks. Their first job, they're writing checks writing us checks and paying it forward. And what is greater than that? And, you know, and that's what we're really trying to do is to really let our communities know, one, you matter. 
And two, I actually believe, you know, there's, there's just the great days that are coming. Our big thing is we didn't realize until we told the business community in Eggleston that we're moving how much of an economic engine we were. We didn't know that because our kids are out there eating and going to the store from CVS to everyone else. They're like, Robert, you don't realize you got like a thousand kids buying stuff. And we're like, whoa, new market business associate says we're excited that you're coming because all of a sudden, never thought of it. Our organization, these young folks are an economic engine in the Eggleston Square area. So when you start taking the average of four to 500 kids a day from, you know, spending in businesses, oh, it has an impact. So now that's my new thing is also our community is a reminder. We're an economic engine and that's all of our communities, young people in the Dallas. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Robert Lewis Jr. God, you're, you, you know, what you've accomplished in this community for young people and now around the country, just amazing. I'm, I feel privileged. I've gotten to watch it for 30 years. So Legendary. thanks for being here. Legendary. Um, and, uh, Douglas Williams. Wow. Meet is the place to go. I've heard so much about you. We'll be there before you know it. Um, and just thanks for the spirit that you bring to this work and to the, the generosity and the community building that you're so committed to. Thank you very um, much. It's all about very that. lucky. Thank you. Me too. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to add passion and stir. I want to thank uh, our team and I hope our listeners uh, will go to our uh, website at add passion and stir, look at and listen to other episodes. You can rate them. You can rank them. You can subscribe uh, and let your friends uh, know about them. Thanks to our producer, Paul Woodall, who comes up to Boston from DC just to make this podcast so good. Uh, we're at Cybersound Studios on Newberry Street in Boston, which is the place to do podcasts if you're in this area. Uh, to my sister, Debbie Shore, uh, to Kelly Griffin, and to the whole team at Share Our Strength. Thanks so much. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.